Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. I'll try to eat the mic, like you said. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Um, thanks for coming and braving Wednesday night traffic. I know it's uh, kind of rough out there. So thanks for coming to celebrate the WNBA Centennial event. Um, I am the new president of the WNBA, and I'm very honored to say that. Uh, Rochelle, our immediate past president, has really just handed off an amazing organization that uh, she really kind of stepped up the game and kind of left me some really cool things to work with. So we're really excited. Um, so, uh, it's our uh, 100th year, and for those of you who don't know much about the WNBA, it was started by a group of women before um, women even had the right to vote uh, to advance women in the literary industry. So, I'm really honored to be a part of this organization. And so, tonight, we have some amazing women to help us celebrate the centennial. Um, Lisa Meekum uh, will be our moderator tonight. And of course, we have amazing authors, Natasha and Jade, but I'll let Lisa introduce them. Uh, Lisa writes a little bit of everything. Her work has appeared in Amazon's Day One, Catapult, The Tishman Review, among other publications. And she's served as an editor, advisory board member, and reader for various literary magazines. And as a social worker, she writes grants for social justice-oriented nonprofits. That's amazing. Um, Lisa is finishing a book about mental illness in the suburbs. And we are really excited to have her moderate the conversation with our critics acclaimed authors. So everyone, let's give a warm welcome for Lisa. I get to live out any, like, you know, podium fantasies I've ever had here. Thank you for that. Let me know if you can't hear me, if you have a problem. Um, Really honored to have been asked. It's always a surprise when you're an emerging writer when someone's like, will you do something? I'm like, really? Okay, yeah. And to be a part of an organization that is founded on the power of books and bringing women together around books is something that means a lot to me. So thank you, Rochelle, for extending the invitation originally. Um, before I introduce the writers tonight, I feel like we can't really talk about women in words without first acknowledging some stuff that's happened this week. Um, Nabra Hassanin, a black Muslim girl who was kidnapped outside a mosque and brutally beaten to death by a man with a baseball bat. Charlena Lyles, a mother of four who was shot and killed in her apartment. She was pregnant and three of her four children were home when she called the police to report a burglary. Shortly after they arrived, Miss Lyles, who the police knew to be mentally ill, pulled a knife and both officers shot her. 
and Diamond Reynolds, who had to suffer this last week through the acquittal of the police officer who shot her boyfriend, Philandro Castile, seven times in his car after a traffic stop, while she and her four-year-old daughter sat in the car with him. She was also subjected to what I think is the indignity of a video released today of her and her daughter in the back of a squad car following the incident, the daughter begging her mother not to scream, quote, because I don't want you to get shooted, end quote. You know, depending on the media reports, who you talk to, who's in your circles of social media or your life, there are different takes on these women's lives and their deaths, but I know they suffered because they are women, and in particular, they're women of color in a world that fear women, fears women that's structured to keep women oppressed and silent and dead. So I would like to dedicate our conversation tonight to these women and all the others whose names I wish I had time to say tonight too. Um, so I'm a writer, but I'm really a reader first, so this is like a geeky, geeky thing for me to do because I love these writers and I admire them. Jade Chang has worked as an arts and culture journalist and was recently an editor at Goodreads. She's the recipient of a Sundance Art Journalist Fellowship and a nominee for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction. Her novel, The Wings vs. the World, is a New York Times editor choi editor's choice and was named one of the best books of 2016 by BuzzFeed, NPR, Elle, Amazon, and others. The Wings is in the process, I'm assuming, of being published in 12 countries. And NPR said, her book is unrelentingly fun, but it is also raw and profane, a source of fierce pride, fierce anger, and even fiercer love. Natasha Dion is a 2017 NAACP Image Award nominee and author of the critically acclaimed novel Grace, which was named a New York Times and Kirkus Review Best Book of 2016. A practicing attorney, law professor, and creator of the popular LA-based reading series Dirty Laundry Lit, her writing has appeared in American Short Fiction, BuzzFeed, LA Review of Books, The Rumpus, and other places. So please welcome Jade and Natasha. So my first question that I already emailed you to give you a little heads up I was going to ask is when did you first know you were female? At what point in your life did that really register with you? You know, I thought that was such an interesting question. I thought that was such an interesting question. Is that better? It might not be on. How's that? There you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I thought that was such an interesting question because I've never considered that before. I, I think I just always, um, I always thought of myself as a girl I, or as a woman or, or as female. I think that, um, you know, my earliest memory of there being sort of actual physical gender differences. Um, I remember being at home and my parents were pretty bohemian, you know, they they would shower and then go to the um, and then like go to their bedroom naked. And one day I kind of noticed that my dad had something that I didn't have. And I thought it was the funniest thing I had ever seen in my life. And I felt the same way when I sort of noticed that my mom had hair between her legs. You know, again, I was like, what? This is so weird. So I don't know. but but. As for myself, I 
honestly don't think I ever thought of it. And, and I also had a childhood of, you know, playing with uh, matchbox cars and stuffed animals kind of equally. So, yeah, it was a different time also. Yeah. When I first got your question, I was like, what? <laughs> they, you know, because it asks also, you know, fem when did you first know you're a female, a woman, and a girl? And, and it's such a big question, isn't it? You know, socially, like no one ever said you're a girl or, you know, it wasn't an issue growing up. Like you're saying, you saw, I never saw my dad naked, but I mean, <laughs> thank God. Yeah. I know. Yeah, no, but it was never like I. There was never like this is for boys. This is like we didn't get presents for Christmas. Like we were one of those families that didn't celebrate Christmas, so it wasn't about toys. I wore tough skins because my brother outgrew them, and he was a year older than me, so they were mine. So I was like in tough, you know. So all the things. So socially, there was no difference, you know, that I could see on the surface. I just knew, you know, girl boy but I never really thought about it as far as knowing that I was a woman it was probably my first orgasm uh, nice. but, then, but also in boardrooms you know um, working with men and, and often being the only woman as an attorney and also being on boardrooms and going to men's clubs in San Francisco you know I knew when I was walking in there that I was a woman and everybody would turn around and then often it was oh we need we need a secretary so here you go and I'm like oh I don't do that you know and send it back you know things like that those were sort of really as an adult that I started really noticing that there was you know it wasn't the way I had grown up and then when did you first know you were a writer? And I guess in that way, like, you have an inkling, right? I like to write. When did you feel like a writer? How did that come to be for you? I know you're <laughs> I, You know, oh, do you have an answer? You should go. <laughs> <laughs> See, Jade and I have been on a panel before, and I know what she's going to say. <laughs> like, Maybe you can answer for me. No, no. Oh, yeah, you answer. No. Um, I've always written stories. I have younger brothers and sisters, so there's seven siblings I have. And I used to create stories, so I would always be, I would think a storyteller first before I was writing it down or understood how to write um, or what I was writing. I would come up with stories to help them to go to sleep, scary stories or stories that I thought were funny. And we would sing songs, so they were always musicals. <laughs> um, but so I've always written and we've and kind of, we've always told stories. As far as writing, it was nothing that I was serious about doing until later in life because when my family came from Alabama it was it was never going to be an option for me to be a writer or an artist of any sort so in that great migration you know from the south when a lot of black families came to the west it was an immigrant story from that point moving forward escaping what I call the terrorism of the south so saying that you were going to be an artist and and not work was not an option for a, a black girl coming from a family that was escaping that. Um, so it was always lawyer, doctor, engineer. Um, but I always wrote, and as an attorney, I have to tell stories. I have to tell other people's stories. I have to retell their stories. I do post-conviction criminal work. So helping people to get pardons from the governor or whatever. So you're retelling their story in their life, you know, since they got out of prison or since they were arrested. So you're always, so I'm always writing and that's how I was able to get it out. Um, and I started writing this novel, you know, while I was working and um, doing, we were working on the Affordable Care Healthcare Act. 
um, through President Obama. I was working with community clinics, um, and I started writing this novel shortly after I was inspired, and that's when that happened, yeah. You know, I think what you said about um, having younger siblings and kind of telling stories to them, I think that really is what made me a writer as well, and I never thought about it that way. But I have a sister who's five years younger, and it was kind of always my job to hang out with her and entertain her, and I enjoyed it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a burden, but um, a lot of what we did was, was make up stories with each other, and I think it just felt like a natural thing for me to do. Um, I will say, I, yeah, I, I never really had that kind of like, can I call myself a writer? Am I allowed to do this? Because I sort of feel like everyone can do whatever they want to do. <laughs> you know, whether it's successful or not, we'll see. But, but uh, yeah, it just was always kind of something that I, that I worked on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there one thing in particular you've I don't know, noticed or learned about the intersection of being a woman and a writer that you can think about now that, I don't know, that resonates with you? Sorry. Um. What it's like to be a writer and a woman, you know, to be sort of wearing both of those hats yeah. in the world, especially at this time. I think as a woman writer, I first come as a black woman writer. So a lot of it for me is um, the, the black experience because the black experience I think is still separate even from just being a woman um, and being, you know, like um, the speech by Oh, what was her name? She said, ain't I a woman? Um, the whole book was about that. You know, you have all these suffragists, you know, saying, you know, rights, but oh no, you're black, you need to stay over there. You know, that's different. Your womanhood is different. And for black women, we have a different role too in the, what we write and what we, and what's taken seriously, even the way we look, you know, like I am not a typical, like everywhere I go, and if, you know, for my book tour, whether it was Philadelphia or London or whatever, I would always get some form of the question, I can't really see you as an intellectual, you know? Yeah, all the time. It was like, at first I was like, oh, is that a compliment? What is that? I was like, okay, thanks. And then like the fifth time, I'm like, what do you mean by, you know, because there's, a way that we're supposed to look as writers, as black women writers who were, who were taken seriously and things like that. But it was always some form of that. But also with, in the black culture anyway, or just in general, I think American society, yeah. black women are often, um, and I don't want this to come out the wrong way, um, say it <laughs> I know but I don't want it to be and you know you have nobody really talking back to say let me clarify that um, we, you know we okay <laughs> it's being it's on being recorded it's being recorded okay well I'm just gonna say it though <laughs> well it, so in politics I'll put it like this like some people will say that um, that in the black culture they say the black people will elect people who can art who we think can articulate our anger and our pain better than anybody than we than we even can 
I, I vote for you, even though after they get in there, they don't do anything actually for you or for the community. If they can articulate our pain better than we can, we will vote for them, support them, and things like that. So often, black women, black men who are writers are often the voice of anger, are often the voice. We can't write about, you know, the nice beach story about, you know, traveling Europe and having a great time with this. You know, it has to be, it always feels like we're in this way marginalized to be the voice of anger, the voice of this, the voice of, you know, and there's a lot that's going on with black people. That is not, that I believe that also literature has a moral responsibility. So I'm not saying that that shouldn't happen. But usually when you see us, especially black women, it's always that we have to be you know, this voice, we have to do this, let's rally behind this. And in that way, it just further puts us in a corner, like we're not real people. Yeah. We're, you know, it, you know, we're the victims all the time yeah. and not the successes. And I think it tells us a story about who we are that's not always true. Mm. And so, um, so I think it's different for me because I want to be the voice. I want to be a voice. I'm not saying the voice. I want to be a voice, but I also want to be the softness that's a woman. Mm. You know, I don't want to always be, you know, the mule. I don't want to be that. She's a hard working woman. You know, she has your back. That's who we are, but we're other things too. So for me as a black woman writer, I want to be able to show both sides or different sides of us that you can't beat us and we'll be okay. Because that's right now, no matter whether we're a voice or not, we're whipping boards in many ways. And I don't like that that's always the case for us. That's where we're celebrated. Because there are quiet books that you don't hear about that aren't celebrated because they're not angry enough. They're not, you know, and we should be allowed to be all things. So I would come from, you know, we need to be, we should be allowed to be all things and celebrated as all things. And we're not there yet. But there's a lot of work to be done, too, so... No, I'm going to let you answer all the questions first because you set everything up perfectly, which I so agree. And, you know, I think that that is true of books by people of color in America in general. I think that for a long time, you couldn't be a non-white writer and write a book that was fun, you know? I mean, maybe you could write, like, um, erotic romance or something, but but so you couldn't write a literary novel that was sort of upbeat. Um, you had to write about pain. That was it. I had to write about my grandmother's bound feet. You know, there was like no other option. Or I had to write about how much that hurt me as a person living in Los Angeles. And I, that is something that has always infuriated me. And I've always thought about that not just as um, an Asian woman, but just as a person of color in general, I think that I've always thought of that as something incredibly unfair. And when I wrote this book, one of my biggest driving forces was that I wanted to write about joy. I wanted to write a book that was frivolous and glittery and fun. But I also knew that the only way to do that and to be taken seriously was to also write a book that was incredibly angry at the same time. So, and I, and I do think that that is part of life. You know, that's part of our daily lives. We, you can't have kind of one without the other. And, you know, I started writing this book so long ago in 2009. And things have changed 
in a way that I would not have expected. It's been incredibly depressing. But it's also, but things have also changed in a good way. You know, the fact that the same year that my book was published, another writer who's also Asian named Jade published a book that was about her heroin addiction, Jade Sharma problems, um, is amazing to me. You know, I, I don't think that would have happened 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, piggybacking on that a little bit, um, I have a Kathy Acker quote, and she wrote, women need to become literary criminals, break the literary laws, and reinvent their own, because the established laws prevent women from presenting the reality of their lives. So when you've, you know, you've written these books, you're entering the great, I'm going to say, white world of publishing, which is to me how it looks from the outside, not having published a book. What laws did you feel like you could break, you wanted to break? What was that like to try and get your book published? Did you feel like you had to work against any of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I really made the decision to go kind of as big as possible. I decided that, like, that was the only way that I was going to be able to publish in a way that that I wanted to, and I was lucky, <laughs> and it worked. But, um, I, you know, I think the timing was also right for my book. Um, I, it's, it's so hard, though. Like, all of these things are just a strange alchemy. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So I, the first thing I did when I broke rules was, you know, they said never write in dialect. So, and that was like one of the golden rules. So I said, okay. And of course, my whole book is in you dialect. So well done. Oh, thank like, you. It's like just enough. Right. Yeah. But it took a long time. Yeah. You know, they don't, you know, all of the language, every word in a book is, you know, it's part of craft. There's decision in every word that you make. Every And some people will say, oh, is that how your family talk? No, that's not how. That's a part of craft and world building. You're building a language the same as you would if it were starting track, you know, whatever that module is, you know, it's something that's completely made up and then the same way you work with dialect. So I broke rules in order to do that and a lot of it, um, I knew that I was going up against what they call the slave narrative. You know, they say, oh, it's, it, are you writing another slave narrative? If there's a slave in your book and you're a black woman writing about it, it's a slave narrative. So I knew that I had to deal with that. But it's a, for me, it was always a mother-daughter story. But because there's a slave in it, you know, it's a slave. It's a slave. But it's also about slavery. But, you know, when you talk about, and it's a, multi, it's a book with different women of different backgrounds. You know, there's black, there's white, there's, there's, Latina, there's, you know, Jewish, there's such a, a confluence of women because I don't believe that you can tell a story of American history and leave everybody out. It's an impossibility. Even in this room, you're looking, there is no way you can be writing about LA and not have people of color or of all, you know, groups, you know, in that book. The same with American history. So it was an impossibility for me to write a book that wasn't about everyone. And if you have a black character in there, more than likely, they were from slavery, you know, even though she runs away and it's not, you know, really set there. Um, so that was the hardest part, I think, is to say that this book is different than every other book. Or you think you know slavery, let me show you what it looks like. Let's walk through it. So, like, there there are rapes in the book, but those rapes aren't based on something, you know, my imagination in that way. You know, I, these are... 
I, you know, I'm a criminal attorney. These cases, like some people say, how could you think, you know, create something like that? Mm -hmm. So these are cases that have haunted me, that I sit with from my client from 2014, from 2015, up till when this book was released. These aren't like these things from way back then. These, this is what's happening to women today. Um, so all those things were, so I knew it was going to be a hurdle, and I knew at that time before my book sold, I knew that um, that there were a couple big books coming out, you know, two million dollar books, that was Underground, that was uh, Yah Jesse's book, and then now there's calling Grace this third, the third girl, right? The third slave narrative, which, and they couldn't see it as anything, you know, as a mother-daughter story, you know, so that was one of the barriers. I did it anyway, because that's the book I wanted to, t to write. Yeah, mm -hmm. good for you. Yeah, yeah that sort of uh, brings to mind ambition and women and ambition and writers who are ambitious writers. And um, having lived through the election we just lived through, we know what many in this country think about women who have ambition. So how have you, have you had to deal with that? Have you, um, I don't know, has it been unexpected? Has it been, has your craft been able to meet your ambition? Is the career of being a writer getting in the way of your ambition? Is, is that playing out in any way that resonates with you? Um, you know, I think that ambition gets a really bad rap. I think that people are often really scared to admit to their own ambitions. Um, I think it took me a long time not to sort of admit that I was ambitious, but to realize just how ambitious I was. And I think that once I decided that I wanted to write a book that really stretched me in every way possible and that also I hoped would 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 stretch the way that we look at Asian American literature um, I don't know it made everything easier I think once you own your ambitions they help you yeah I love that I love that Be um I don't know if I would say ambitious is the word. Like I wanted to do this thing and I did it. That's what I, you know, if that's if that's the definition. When I think about, for instance, Hillary Clinton, you know, we're talking about the last election and just women who are ambitious. I think that there's another category. I think there's also I think there's ambition, but I think parallel or on this other side if you divide a page in half, you have ambition and you have like Something else. A general creative ambition is also ambition. But I'm thinking of drive. I'm thinking ambition as a driving force. Some people, even Hillary Clinton, and I think about the work that I do. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because people yeah. will say, wow, you know, you really did this, 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 or you're really doing dirty laundry, for instance, so that you can meet all these writers, or you're doing this so that you can... Mm. But that's not why I do it. Yeah. So other people will often project their ambition mm -hmm. on me. I do that because I'm a social justice advocate. I do it because I've, the first pair of bag of shoes I gave away, I was five years old and did a drive and walked down the street collecting old shoes so I could give them to the homeless shelter. It's who I am. People like even Hillary Clinton, I think that's who she is, yeah. you know, and it and that's part of what drives her, not just ambition to sell books, to get this out, to do this. It's because it's 
for some people is the heart of what they are. And there's nothing wrong with the other side was saying the heart is to sell this book, to sell it, to sell as many copies, because I have a message in here and I want to do something about it. But there's also something else. And often people will say, oh, you do that because you want this thing. No, I do that because it's the right thing to do. It's because I want people who don't have access or whose voice are not heard right now, I want them to be on that stage. I don't want all writers, for instance, with Dirty Laundry, I don't want them to all have books out. I want it to be the person who, last time we had a Starbucks barista who thinks she wants to write, you know, to, to write, or somebody who's in an MFA or thinking about going to an MFA, or is not really sure if they're right. I want that on the stage. I don't want it to just be a, you know, a masturbation of the ones who have made it. You know, I don't want it to be that because it matters to me because somebody reached out for me. And at that time, it was Penn Center USA. I was a lawyer. I was like, I don't know if I could do this or not. You know, and they said, we think that you can do it and we're going to support you. Not only that, we're going to give you $1,000. We're going to put you in, you know, the Emerging Voices program and we're going to help you. I didn't even know there was an, a literary community. Mm -hmm. So somebody did it for me too. So that's why I can't help but to say, you know what, I have this thing now. Hey, why don't you come and do this thing? I only have six spots, so it can't be all this. But, you know, and I can't say yes all the time because that's why I started the table. So it's literally a seat at the table. But that's what drives me. So when we talk about ambition, I think we have to kind of also look at the different kinds of ambition, but the but what's dropped on me is often you do this because right. you want something. Right. So I think that's really interesting. I, I hadn't even thought about kind of that side of everything, which you do really beautifully. Um, but I am interested in your thoughts on creative ambition, because when I talk about ambition, that really is what I'm talking about. Like, I'm not talking about a huge sale. I'm not talking about kind of, you know, selling a ton of books. Obviously, I want to do those things because I need to make a living, and, you know, those are the facts of life. But, um, I think what the ambition that really drives me is this sense of I know there's this thing that I can make and I want to try as hard as I can to make that thing, you know, the way that I have envisioned it. Yeah. And I think that that is a kind of ambition that women are often reluctant to voice. I don't know, but I don't know if you feel that way or... Here we go. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I completely, I mean, I felt maybe because, you know, I didn't, I never thought that my book would sell, yeah. you know, as well as it did. I didn't think that it was going to be in the New York Times. I didn't think that, you know, Time Magazine, <laughs> I didn't think that all this stuff, I wrote the book that I wanted to because it made sense to do it. Like I had a, ch I had two children because I wanted to to make children, you know, and I want. So it it was never like, oh, I have this, I want to create. I just like you, t like you when you were talking about, you know, you just are. When are you a writer? You just are storytelling. You just do it. So I don't. So maybe that's why I don't attribute ambition to the creative side because we can always create. Like I can always, but it's the ambition that drives you to go all the way. You know, as a writer, you're so discouraged all the time. It's so lonely. It's just so. What makes you finish your book? Like when people tell me, you know, who's your agent or whatever. And we were talking a little bit about this um, just before, Lisa. There's nothing you can do with an unfinished manuscript. I cannot send it to my agent for you. I can't do 
do anything. You know, you can read excerpts of it, but there's really nothing you can do. Most writers don't finish. They have projects that are around. It's hard to finish. Mm. So when I think about ambition, it's that thing that gets you up and makes you finish. And if it's not good enough, you have to revise. Then you have to revise. Then are you going to invest in yourself and take a class at UCLA if you don't want to go to an MFA? Are you going to, you know, what are you going to invest in? That's what I think about when I think about ambition. What makes you keep, what drives you? For me with Grace, I knew I had a message. So I felt like I was delivering it, you know, to some invisible finish line. I was like, I just have to get it there and it has to be the best that it could be. And then you hear people talk about it like, oh no, Emancipation Proclamation should have been a happy moment for slaves. I'm like, no! (laughs) You know, so, but I knew I had to get it out there. So I felt like I had birthed another child. Yeah, so, but I didn't think about it like, that's interesting. Yeah, I just... Yeah. Well, I think for a lot of women, Uh or maybe just me, sometimes you feel like you need permission to be a writer, you know, and you need to maybe to go to the readings or to go to the classes or to, that you you don't believe enough in your own drive and your own ambition, your own ability to do it, the fact that you sound fine on the page just as you are. And so I think the counter, you know, balance to the ambition part is maybe the permission that we all have it. We already have it. We already have it. Can each of you just quickly summarize what your book is about? A quick, like, about-about, and then what it really was about to you when you wrote it, like, in your heart. All right. Like, okay. a, you know, like your, uh, your, your movie line. Your, yeah. um, so The Wangs versus the World is about a family that has lost their fortune, and they embark on this um, crazy cross-country road trip um, to go live with the oldest daughter, Sina, um, who is a kind of disgraced art world it girl who's kind of, who's in retreat in upstate New York. Um, and the story kind of starts with the father, Charles, who came to America from Taiwan, made the fortune in cosmetics, and um, he got... It is so hard to do this, even though I've done it so many times. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, and he has... Uh, he has three children. Uh, one of them is Sina, who's, who we've discussed. And another, the youngest one, Gracie, is in high school. She's an aspiring style blogger. (laughs) And the middle son, Andrew, is a young stand-up comic who's in college. And we see him do a couple of of acts on the road. Um, But the other sort of driving force is that now that Charles has lost his fortune in America, all he wants is to go back to China and reclaim the land that the communists took from his family. Um, so yeah, that is that is the plot. It is funny and sad. Um, but what is it really about? It, it is really about. Um, It's really about America in 2008. I mean, I was really interested in the financial collapse. I was working in a luxury magazine during the collapse, and it was fascinating. I really got to see very wealthy people really freaking out, (laughs) and you get this sense of just, you know, how electric 
a change like that is to the country. It's, it's good and it's bad. It turns everything upside down. You don't know what'll happen at the end of it. Um, so it's very much about that. And it's about love. Uh, you know, it's about fam a family finding each other again. Um, yeah, and it's also really about joy and anger, as I said earlier. <laughs> Hi. Um, I would say um, my elevator pitch, if I were to give you. <laughs> um, Grace is about four outcast women on the eve of the Civil War. And the struggle is basically the fight for their lives. And if I were to say what I think it's about outside of slavery, because she's, you know, at the beginning is her sort of escaping um, the confines of of a sadistic master, but she, um, it's about freedom for all of those women. The multicultural story, you know, all these different women, freedom looking different for different women, depending on who they are. So freedom is physical freedom. Freedom is a freedom of their mind. There's a married woman, the plantation mistress, who, you know, because of her divorce and her marriage, you know, she's, she has escaped that because I think that that's true for us even today. What is freedom really to eat, to all of us. For some of us, it's just about privacy. For some of us, it's freedom from our relationships, even with our parents or with our spouse or partner or whatever that is, or as a mother, you know, escaping the bondage of being, you know, just seen as a mother or whatever those responsibilities are. Um, but for me, it's always been a mother-daughter story. It's a story about love. I wanted to tell a love story and about a father also who loves his daughter. Um, so she's the, the main character, the daughter, um, is raised by her father, who is a slave. And it's odd on this plantation, but he takes care of her. Um, so it's about that too, but mainly about love. I hope people take away love from it and hope. <coughs> what was the very first glimmer of the book to each of you? You the best story. <laughs> <laughs> I know your story. Oh, yeah, it's the same, but I feel like a crazy person every time I tell it. <laughs> no. Okay, how do I tell it? So, um, <laughs> So I hadn't written a novel before. I had written screenplays. So I knew how to write screenplays, like for MTV, like little shorts and things like that. That was sort of my fun time. And when my son was born, I knew that he was sick. Um, he was only a few few weeks old, but I knew he didn't behave the same as my daughter, who was born the year before. And so I would always carry him around because I was like, if he's going to die, he's not going to die alone. So I would always have him, or I would ha give him to my husband. And so I woke up with him. And I was walking down the hall, and it was the day. It was a daytime. It was maybe Saturday, and I remember the light was streaming in the window. And all of a sudden, it was nighttime. And I'm looking around, and, and I was in the woods, and I knew it was Alabama because it was a town that I had spent a lot of time with. My family's all from this little town called Tallahassee, Alabama. And um, so I was walking down, and I knew I was there, and it was nighttime. And I remember the moon was there, and it looked blue, and there was a girl running in a yellow dress. I knew she was a slave, and she was pregnant, and she had blood on her dress. And... And as I'm watching this, I was thinking I was dreaming. I was like, I never really got up. I'm still asleep. I never picked up my son. I'm still sleeping. So I was comfortable. I was like, oh, okay. So I'm good. And I'm watching this happen, but then she's killed. 
<laughs> and then I was, and then it was over. And then it's daytime. I'm in my hallway, and I'm holding my son. And I was like, "Oh shit, what just happened?" And I remember giving my son to my husband. I said, "Can you just hold him?" And I wrote down what I saw. And so that, so the opening chapter of the book is what I saw. Like it's largely unchanged from the day that I saw it you know, eight years ago or whatever that was. Yeah, about eight years ago. Um, I mean, like, the because I heard her dialect so thickly, when I first wrote it, it was highly, um, it sounded, because I could hear her voice in my head or whatever, however this thing happened. I don't know if it was a vision, dream, whatever. So I wrote it down, and that was the only thing that changed, but it's largely exactly as it was when I first wrote it down. And I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, what is this? What am I supposed to do with it? Does it fit in a screenplay? What is this? Um, um, and I put it in a drawer for like six months and then someone died that I knew and then I knew what the whole book was about. Wow. I knew it was her. She was going to be in it. She's based, the, there's a um, Jewish prostitute that's in it who was a friend of my family who took care of us when my father had left. And I knew I wanted to honor her and honor who she was and she became a character in the book, Cynthia. Oh. <laughs> That is quite a story. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um, so I also heard a voice, but it was very different. <laughs> um, I, you know, so Charles Wang, the father um, of this family, his voice um, was really kind of the first thing that came to me. And he is a character that... that I have met in real life and that I really haven't seen in very many books or on screen, um, which is a Chinese man who is incredibly self-confident, incredibly fun, older, um, sort of larger than life, um, unapologetic about who he is, and who is happy that all his kids want to be artists. And these people exist. It's not like, it's not a, a sort of, you know, unicorn in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I heard his voice. And the other thing that I really wanted to do was, um, you know, he has, he, he essentially he has imperfect English throughout the book. And again, that is not something that is a mark of shame for him. It is instead, you know, more of a badge of defiance. Like, this is the way he speaks. This is the way he goes out in the world. Why should he have to adjust for anyone else? And um, yeah, so that... That was really what what kind of started it for me. And the first, I'd say the first chapter of the book is pr pretty much exactly, I, there's some small changes, but those are the first pages that I wrote. Yeah. And same for you, Natasha, right? Those are the first pages, yeah. 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 Do it's all amazing. your characters come to you like that? Kinda. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, so how did you construct your female characters for these books? You're conscious, obviously, of their time and place, right? That they're in family structures, maybe, or in structures of society. They may have inferior status, but they all have agency. It's very clear and power from the way you write them. So how did that come to you to do that? Were you working against what people would expect women at that time? Were you working within it? How did you do that? What? My book is contemporary, so it's just us, <laughs> basically. Um, I, 
you know, I I do have basically the the two sisters. I really wanted to set them up as being kind of of two opposing generations. So the so it's it's um, 2008. The older sister is 28, and the younger sister is 17, 18. And you know, those are the world. I think our world is changing so quickly now that they, even though they're not really that far apart, they look at the world in completely different ways. And that was something I really wanted to explore. And then it was also really interesting to write um, a stepmother character who kind of comes from poverty in Taiwan and finds herself in this completely different world um, and to kind of examine how she deals with it. Um, I have to say, so Natasha and I did an event together and I hadn't read her book yet at the time and the moderator asked us, um, well, how do you feel about uh, doing, you know, putting difficulties in the way of your characters. And Natasha was like, oh, it's really hard for me. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? It's like, but, you know, the difficulties that my characters face are not that difficult in, right. in comparison. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. Because yeah. it's the violence. It was the yeah. violence. I, yeah, we were, I was talking about the violence. It's hard to write for me to write violence. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it should. I remember a writer said, "If you're going to write about sex, if you're not turned on by your own scene, it's a bad scene. <laughs> or if you're not laughing at your own joke, they're not funny. You know, right? It's like, oh, this will be funny to someone. So the violence, I wanted to show it and be honest about it. Like I talked already about how when I even writing rape." You know, I wrote it. I wanted to be clear what happened. There was a book at that time about, you know, Jefferson. Was it Jefferson who was sleeping with his slave? And, oh, it was this love story. She was 15, and they loved you. And it's, no, it's not. You're raping someone, you know, who can't consent. Um, So I wanted to be clear what these relationships were and what they did to families um, and let it be truthful. And also, you know, and... And I hope no one takes this the same way, but some of the violence that I that I have to deal with as a, you know, as a defense attorney, and the, some of the clients that that I've been asked to represent when I'm reading the rape accounts and things like that, there are terrible rapes that are date rapes, of you know, molestations, things that happen, how people are drugged, you know, like one that bothers me, and I've written about about the little the girl who he sponsored her soccer team, and everybody called him uncle, and you know. And he he raped her, you know, and made her and went through her phone, and you know, and was like, oh, show me your friends. And then when they came over after this rape, she was like, I'll call this one. And she had a car, and she says, let me go and flag her down outside. And she goes outside. She jumps in the car window and just says, drive, just go. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how she got away. And this is someone who who I, who I represented at one point, who you know for. That's its own story. But I also wanted to show the brutal rapes that I would see when I worked with community clinics, when you have women who can't even walk coming in the thing because they're literally ripped from one end to the other like they had given birth. You know, like just one continued. So I wanted to show that there are that rape looks different and the violence that occurs and that women in all those cases will not say anything. Mm. 
And, when I, and I wanted to show this is what rape looks like. It's not just a word. Like people say, oh, she was raped. Oh, this was. It's not just a word. Just like slavery, it's not just a word that we think we know. So that's why for for grace, I slowed everything down. Let's look at this thing that you think you know, mm-hmm. and let's look around. But also, outside of the violence, I didn't want it to just be about these people being victimized, victimized. Because women, since creation, or whatever, however you think that is, whatever that beginning is, you know, have wanted things. We've fallen in love, we had dreams, we had hopes. But when you, whenever I read a slave narrative, you know, some of the things that that I saw, which was also true, was that I felt like watching like something in a cage, which we, which that is slavery, mm-hmm. but like a zoo animal. Let's see what bad thing happened. I wanted to show that she's a woman too. You know, that ain't I a woman? Mm-hmm. You know, she's a she. She fell in love. This slave fell in love. She had a daughter who she loved and wanted to be a mom. So that was primarily the story I wanted to tell, with the backdrop being the violence. Mm-hmm. So like even now, today in our day and age, with everything that's going on, that's the backdrop of the real lives that we live every day. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to build in Grace that I thought I hadn't really seen. I didn't want her talking about, you know, what it was like in slavery. I wanted her to fall in love but still have those those issues, you know. So so that's what I tried to do in the book. That was so notable to me in your book, me honestly. Because I haven't seen it in very many slave narratives at all. Yeah. It was really beautiful. Thank you. How are we doing on time? I forgot my phone up here. Okay. Um, so America is personified in both of your books as female. Um, and so I both, I kind of wanted to read, if you don't mind, just a quick section from each one, because I thought that was really interesting. Um, so from Natasha's book. The river splits her in two, so the men named one side of her east and the other west but she still see herself as one. Be silly to cut a person in half and call them now two peoples. Treat them different, bless you. But they did. On her east side, bluffs hold groves of magnolias and oak trees like a fistful of flowers and plantation houses. The west holds the mills and the workers. Talisee didn't say nothing when they split her up. Of course she didn't. She's a piece of land, a mute spirit. Any voice she may have had went when the last Indian tribes left. But you can feel her fury, anger at how she was tricked over the years, slow and steady. If it was done to her quick, she might have noticed. Then, there are a couple times in your book, and of course, they were funny um, <laughs> to me. So the one line about the dad that, that Jay talks about, he never should have fallen for America. And it's kind of this theme over and over that America was this, you know, desirous, you know, realm that he would conquer and would give him everything he wanted. And then, you know, ironically at the end, he, he had, you know, something happens to him and he finds himself sort of thinking about this again. And he says to himself, there were other things that he knew. The Indians were just a tribe of early Chinese people who took a long walk across the Bering Land Bridge and ended up in a new world. The true Americans were Chinese. It was too bad it had taken him so long to remember that. Charles struggled to hold on to the receding world, to the knowledge that his loves, the four of them, his children, were all around. Love burned bright white in him, a glow, a glow. The world began to slip from his grasp. 
earthquakes, floods, infidelity, betrayal, failure. The fields burn and the next harvest is assured. The world destroys itself and we rebuild it. The destroying is as important as the rebuilding. There can be as much joy in the destruction as the rebirth. So did you guys intend to capture America that way? Um, and since, I don't know, both of you, I don't know, especially in your book, Jade, there's the American dream and the idea of that and, mm -hmm. and how that you know, can be destructive in the end. So I'm just curious how, how you guys think about America in that way. Oh, that is so complex. Um, I think that, I think that my favorite thing, the, the thing that fascinates me the most about America is how much America believes in its own myths about itself. And that was something that I really wanted to dissect and explore because when people come to this country, they are presented with those myths. We export those myths in movies. Um, we are, you know, we're, we're fed those myths in, in school. And I, and, and I find many of them to be really beautiful, you know? I think that the fact that, that America really, I do think that collectively as a country, we're very proud that the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are, you know, part of w one of our founding documents. I think that that is like a really foundational American myth that is, if you just, if you don't think about anything else that has happened in this country, an incredibly beautiful thing and so I was interested in kind of looking at the all of the kind of flip sides of that so I, I don't know that I had sort of a particular intention or a desire to you know I had a lot I've had a lot of people ask me if my intention was to dispel the American dream you know to kind of say that the dream is a lie. And that's not my intention. My intention is just to examine it, really. Yeah. So I think when I think about, I mean, in a broader scale, I think of the world generally as a her because of the way we treat it. Yeah. Um, and so Tallahassee or Alabama was no different for me or America is no different for me. Women generally give so much away without getting anything in return. Um, we give without, whether it's money or, you know, our relationship, like we will give, 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 and not even get a relationship back. We'll give, give, give. We don't have to be paid the same. Just give us something. That's the relationship of women to the world, and and it's and it's problematic. And there's a change that's that's happening right now. So I wanted to show that because so when I talk to my students, we talk about you know different types of it's business law, but I teach business law as a game. So and we talk about relationships, the value of relationships. All of us need things. We're all needy. Um, so you have to decide, are you going to be, are you going mining or are you planting? So mining, everything that we use as human beings has been mined. So even if you say, I, I'm, you know, I'm so for the environment, I ride my bicycle, those tires, that frame has been mined. And when you mine something from the earth, you can't put it back. It just leaves a hole, right? There's nothing that's there. So we you know, every, but then there, and that's how some people do relationships. They get whatever they can out of you and they leave a hole and then they're gone. They don't 
put something back. And then there's the other opportunity where you can actually sow into something, seeds or relationship you give and you take. And there's that kind of healthy relationship. But there's also the mining relationship. So we have to decide what we want to be. Most of us or America or the world, people around the world, we're taking and taking and not giving back except for the socially. And women do that especially. You know, we're, we're mined. We're off in mind. That is the bottom line. All of our worst, worst relationships, if you look at them, it's because we've been mined. And nobody has sewn back into us. They haven't given us. So it made sense to me that when they did that, you know, when, the way we treat the world is how we treat women. Yep. So how do we, f I mean, literally fill the hole? And I think this is something I, you know, emailed you guys to think about too. You know, how as women do we support other women who are writing, who want to be writing? How do we lift um, other people's voices, especially when we start to find platforms of our own? Um, so I know you'd come up with a few things you wanted to mention. And Jade, if you had anything you wanted to mention, I'll add some things too. Can I start? <laughs> It's important, you know, to be good, you know, to be good, good, good um, be socially active. If you have a voice, you should say, you know, look at these other writers. If you have a stage, you need to get people on that stage. The first time I met Natalie, she invited me to read when my book first came out, things like that. But also I have a stage, so I can invite other people to come to my stage. I can encourage people, not talk bad about people, you know, because we're all in this. It's, it's hard for everybody, no matter what situation they're in when we don't know everybody's situation. So really to be encouraging. Um, the editors that are going to publish you, women especially, are probably going to be other women first. That's the bottom line. The people who are publishing you are probably other women first. So support those, those people, those writers, those publications um, to see your work move forward. And share your resources. Don't be, don't you know, don't be selfish. It's hard for, like, people will ask me, I don't even know how to get an agent or how to do this. And these are things that I didn't know how to do. I didn't even know where to start. Who do I ask about that? Do I just email people? How? We should be sharing that, you know. But you should also not just be, remember how I talked about the relationship of, of sharing? You should go to people's stuff. If people have a reading, show up for that. If you can give something, if you could pay $10 to get in there or, or to, to buy their book, that is supporting that writer. The hours, the hundreds of hours that went into that book, you're supporting them. And then when you're asking for something back, it doesn't feel like you're being mined. And I know in my book, come out, one of the surprises after my book had come out was, you know, you get, you have a mail a inbox of a gazillion emails of people asking for things. You know, they, you know, they need, and you're like, I've been like, for me, I was like, I've been doing dirty laundry for seven years and you have never came to one event, but you want, you know, a recommendation letter or you want, but we all need things. That's not to say don't ask for things. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is let it be a relationship. It's a community. The literary community is a community and everybody has a role and we should be sharing, not just mining people. Does that make sense? And the people who are here should also be giving back all, all, all the time, right? And that's what Women's National Book Association is doing too, by even being here. And you guys are in volunteers, the president, everybody here is volunteers, except for the staff that's here today are volunteers. We've come volunteer, you know, all this. You have to volunteer, yeah. Yeah, I think just 
approaching everything with a generosity of spirit. You know, I think that um, anyone could be amazing. You know, I think that that is um, one of the one of the things that that I learned pretty early on. Um, and and I think kind of keeping that in mind is really important. Um, I think, you know, as as writers who now do have like a little bit of a platform, um, you know, I do try to be kind of available if someone does have an actual question or request or like something that I can really help with. Um, Read you know, thirty pages of my book. <laughs> Well, I don't know. You I have I have too many friends who are writers, but I have I actually if you write a really good email, you know, but it's got to be good. Um, I'm also a weirdo. I will email people who write um, essays that I think are fantastic, and I'll just email them kind of little fan letters and. Uh, yeah, and I think that's, I don't know, I, I think stuff like that actually really is a booing mm -hmm. force. Um, but, yeah, I think, but, but I do think, honestly, trying to make your own spirit as kind of generous and inclusive as possible is kind of the... I agree. The goal. Natasha, will you talk yeah. about the table and what you're trying to do with that? I think yeah. that's really important. Okay. Yeah, so the table, so I, so I have Dirty Laundry, lit, which has been going on for seven years. So we usually have six to eight readers, um, but there's a lot more, applic you know, there's a lot more people that want to read, so I can never do that, especially new people. Um, but I wanted to start to begin an outlet for people of all different levels of writing who don't know what a literary community is or who want to get their feet wet. So it's called the Table Reading Series. It's um, tablelit.com where I pair people with mentors just to plan a reading and to host a reading. But it's mainly focused on people who are outside of the literary community because of, you know, disabilities, because of um, some people have, you know, illnesses. They just can't show up to things. You know, there's all sorts of things, financial issues. Um, they've just, they're new to LA. So things like that, that keep people on the, on the outside. So it gives them an opportunity to plug in by volunteering and working with people who are more established in the literary community. That's great. Yeah. And a, gr oh, I'm sorry, a group of town yeah. that um, uh -huh. you'd also mentioned is Women Who Submit, which is a really important group. Yes. Yeah. If you yeah. just want to. Yeah. So Women Who Submit is a great organization. Um, Kathy, we're, Hey, hey, Kate is here. <laughs> Kate Mariama, she works Yay. with Women Who Submit is an organization I would recommend because women don't submit their work. We write and we don't send it anywhere. It gets rejected and that's the last time <coughs> we send it out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so um, Kate is, yep, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Um, we should also put in a little plug for the Penn Emerging Voices program. Um, I'm a mentor this year. I have, I'm working with this amazing young writer. Um, and it's, applications are open now, right? That's what I was going to say, applications are open now. Yes. And you can talk to this lady right That's here. Great. Thank you. Is there one writer whose name you'd like to share today in terms of paying it forward? Somebody you think people should be reading who may not be reading them? 
I would say Caitlin Greenwich. Um, we love you, Charlie Freeman. Um, her book, you know, it got it got a lot of attention initially, but not as much as it should have. It was a great book. She's a great writer who's doing a lot for the community as well, you know, and writing some great articles. A real a real champion. Um, also, Jessica Gross, who um, she has a great memoir, and it's about. I like books that have to do with, um, like, sometimes spiritualism. Like, I write ghost stories because I think America is a ghost story. Um, but I like spiritualism but when they do it well. Like, if I see a Catholic person, I don't want to see it, be, you know, her running down the street with a rosary. She's Catholic. <laughs> da, da, da. I don't want, like, I'm talking about real stories that really show a character, like, show, like, why is she this way and the decisions people make. And she does it so brilliantly in her book. It's called Soulmates by Jessica Gross. Yeah. Um, the, the people on the top of my head right now are all people who I don't think have published books yet, um, but who've been writing essays that I'm really into. There's a writer named, I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but her first name is Rahawa Hale or Hailey? Hailey? H-A-I-L-E. Um, and what I love about her is that she um, is a black woman who writes a lot about traveling. And it's just not something you see a lot. And as someone who spent a lot of my 20s kind of in Europe, in Asia, traveling around, I didn't see a lot of people of color kind of doing that, um, you know, kind of on that route. And it's, I, and honestly, I didn't even think think about it and it is I, I just love the way she wrote this essay about hiking the Appalachian Trail that I really That's that great. I really loved um, I you know another thing is um, a press that someone here works with uh, Jay Ryan unnamed press <laughs> they're doing really great stuff. Um, when I'm here next week with Jesse Chafee, her book is published by them. Um, a good friend of mine, Margaret Wappler, her book Neon Green is published by them. And they're based here in LA and they're doing pretty great work. That's exciting. Yeah. Say one more. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Okay. There's another writer, her name is Aisha Malik, and she wrote this hilarious, it, it reminds me of your book a little bit, you know, but she's she's in London, she's a London-based writer, and it's amazing, it's hilarious, and the name right now is not even, I can see the book cover and not the name, and I'm like, ah, oh, but Alicia Malik, M-A-L-I-K. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to quickly add, um, Jay Dodd, D-O-D-D, who's a writer and artist, um, an advocate for trans women of color, Kima Jones who's here in LA, incredible writer, but she's also founded Jack Jones, which publicizes bold, um, <laughs> I think forward-thinking literature that privileges narratives told by black women and women of color. I mean, what Kima is doing is unbelievable. So check her out. And then I know she doesn't need a plug, but Roxane Gay's book, Hunger, I think is the most important book about women and their bodies to come out in a very, very long time. And I hope everyone will read it. So those are my plugs. So I think we're ready for questions. So um, I'm just going to um, do my little pitch 
which is that please make it a question. Um, I just, people who follow me on Twitter know this drives me crazy. <laughs> Don't tell a story about yourself. I'm here afterwards. I'm happy to hear your stories and answer like personal questions or you know issues you're having. But but please make it a question that would be helpful to everyone here. So. I'll let you guys do the calling on if you want. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering if uh, you, as you're writing these characters, do you ever feel a sense of responsibility at all to the characters? And do you ever get like a sense of, oh gosh, do I have permission to, not permission, but like, am I doing them justice sort of a thing? Because I'm writing something that's sort of partially based on a real woman, and she's not of my demographic. And I feel like, I almost don't have permission to speak for her, but yet, I, mm -hmm. you know, when you write, you know, the, your main character is essentially, well, you. I mean, it's coming out of you, so I'm just wondering if you have any sense of, you know, does that ever give you pause? You know, I think that that is something that a lot of people are very concerned about right now. You know, who has the permission, who has the authority to write who? Basically, um, I am of the school of um, anyone can write anything that they want to, and that the real responsibility is emotional truth. And but I also think that um, you know part of emotional truth means staying away from stereotypes. It means educating yourself about a community. It means r reading what else is out there, you know. Um, but but I, I do think that you, you know, I think that a writer is an artist and you need to do what it is that you are moved to do. But I also think that you might be criticized for it. And that is also a perfectly legitimate thing to happen. You know, I think that, I think that to me what is a little bit um, nuts about the, the, um, the argument about sort of permission is that I don't think permission equals permission to be free from criticism. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> I'd recommend really quickly an essay that Daniel Older wrote that I think is on BuzzFeed. I don't know if anyone knows that. And it's about about writing the other. It's about how to really think about that critically. So I recommend reading that. Yeah. Another question? Anybody? Okay. I'm just gonna say one okay. other thing, which is I read that essay. I think it's great, yeah. but I also think that no one is the other. You yeah. know, like if you're writing a character, it's not the other. Every character is you essentially. So mm -hmm. I think that's also a way to kind of go into it and think yeah. about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <coughs> um, first of all, I would say uh, not to copy that those people who tell you I can't believe you're so smart, but you guys are so freaking smart. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so thoughtful for your, for your questions and your answers. Thanks. Um, I wanted to ask, both of you said, um, and Lisa also please really answer this question as well, um, you sort of always knew that you guys were writers and have always been storytelling. Have you ever had a moment of doubt or um, sort of questioning that path? Particularly like you're saying as people of color who may or may not have been told like you can do these things because mm -hmm. you're always thinking about money and stability and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, because yeah, I... <laughs> 
<laughs> um, so I always have doubts. I always have doubts. Like, you know, what am I doing? Can I really? Am I good at this? Is this? Because I don't. I don't know what it is. Like, have I just written? Because once you, your first, or at least for me, I guess to talk about my experience. Your first book comes out. Did I just write this book? But then, obviously, or at least while I was editing it, now I have all the. You know, I have another book that I'm working on. But you know, it's for me. It's always this moment. You know, where I feel like. You know, is it enough? Am I doing enough? Um, so there's always, at least for me, there was always doubts. But you push through it because doubt is, there's a saying, at least that, or a thing that I believe, that doubt is one of the obstacles to any dream. Okay. Like if you haven't overcome that test, you know, that's sometimes one of the tests that you, even if it's not, can I write this? Maybe can I sell it? Is it even good? Is it, you know, there's other questions. It's not always that I'm a writer, but, you know, those things happen. Um, I, it took me a long time to write this book, and there definitely were moments where I was like, am I ever going to finish this thing? Um, so I think the doubt came in in that sense. Um, I am kind of an asshole in that I don't, I don't know, I don't really feel much doubt in terms of like, can I make this thing that I'm trying to make? You know, I... I feel very lucky that that is the case, but um, but you know, I also feel like I bet more of you feel that way than are willing to admit that you do. You know, like search for that feeling within yourself and own it. Yeah. I had doubts coming here today. I mean, I'm the queen of doubt. <laughs> but I think I think what really helped me to kind of work through that little bit of that is um, a community of writers, you know, and finding people that were trusted readers. And, you know, when you're, like, curled up in a ball on the floor, they're like, come back, we want to read your work. And so whether it's finding a writing group, um, taking classes at UCLA or online, Lambda Literary, um, women who submit, there's, like, all, you know, find your tribe, find safe spaces to, to, to write and be supported. That helps a lot. Can we also say, in terms of writers that you guys should know about, Lisa read the best thing at at a at a reading a few months ago at Jay Ryan's reading. Yeah, I honestly, she made me cry. It was amazing. So you should all be waiting for her. That's very nice. Thank you. It's true. If you like dark stuff, I'm Miguel. Is there another another any other questions? Yeah, in the back. I'm fascinated by the ghost story you just told. Anything like that ever happened to you? Never. That was it. That was, you know, other than dreams. You know, I dream, and I remember my dreams, but never. Yeah. How's your son now? Oh, he, so he, he is disabled, so he's, he's 11 years old, and, you know, he has a difficulty, like, he doesn't really speak, so he has about, he's up to about 20 words now that he can say. He just learned how to say no, so he's always like, no, no. I'm like, don't tell me no. Okay, tell me no. You know, but so, you know, so, like, he ran, he walked when he was four. He ran when he was six. So things like that. Like, he's never said, I love you. You know, thing, you know, as a mom, you know, things that you 
will want. So he's he has a basically there's a condition where his brain can't release a certain chemical, so it affects his entire body. Um, it's the it's the equivalent of what, it's called GABA. It's um, it's like what we have ruhypnol, you know, like date rape drug. Like yeah, we ha we produce it naturally in our brain. He can't release it, so it's always like this for him. So it's difficult. So he did have something wrong with him, mm -hmm. um, but he's fine. He's happy. <laughs> you know, he's a great kid. So yeah. <laughs> I have one very, very, very last question. Um, Natasha, in your book, I think it's a line that says, there's no justice, only grace. And I wonder where you two find grace today. Like, where do you find it? That is a hard question. I she mean, great <laughs> I know. I think in the physical world, you know, I mean, truly just in the kind of beauty and largeness of the physical world. I, as you can tell, I'm kind of sick. And when I was really sick a couple of weeks ago, I honestly was a little bit, um, like, I was hallucinating a little bit, <laughs> honestly. And everything seemed disgusting to me. Like, everything seemed just really dirty. The world seemed really dirty. And then I kind of pictured myself like looking up at the stars and and seeing the cosmos like unfold above me and I this is crazy it sounds like I'm talking about a drug trip but really it's just because I was very sick and couldn't eat um but that was such a beautiful moment and I do think that that um especially in the craziness of the world right now, to me that is, yeah, that, that is where you can kind of always find grace. I don't, <coughs> I don't, I don't know. Like I wrote about it, but I don't, I don't know. Like grace is a person in the book, but it's also a theory, like it's getting more than you deserve, getting something better than you deserve. Mm -hmm. And I think also, I guess finding your own freedom is a way to find that because there's never any just you can never get a wrong or get repaid for the wrongs that are, have been done to you mm -hmm. especially women who go through you know craziness a lot you cannot be repaid and sometimes we spend our lives trying to get back that thing that we lost and you can't get it your freedom <coughs> is just letting it go and moving on and I don't know how we do that as a country you know which is the larger thing like what if everything stops today what if there's no more police killings what if there's no more can we really just say, okay, well, we'll move Let on. Thank go. you. Right. And I don't think that would happen. There has to be a moment where we say we're going to move on and be the best that we could. And I don't know that that will happen in the natural. So it's finding the freedom even in the craziness. Or what one of my, there's a poet named Romus Simpson. He says it's like finding sweet things in piles of shit. <laughs> so how do you find that sweet thing, yeah. you know, and focus on that and not everything else? And that's what it feels like kind of navigating through because sometimes it's like walking in quicksand you know mm -hmm. getting up every day going to work going to do this it's hard you know especially if, if you're a writer you got a, you got that extra sense you know you feel all that yeah. you feel weighty um so it's really just just pushing through mm -hmm. well for me it's in books and I really 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 appreciate you two working hard and making these books happen because they're really important in the world I hope everyone buys them who hasn't or gets them from the library or supports them so thank you thanks, thanks everybody you've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series 
Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.